Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What is the first brand in your life that had an impact on you? Oh, boy. It's weird, but I'm going to actually say Levi's. I remember my first pair. I remember my first pair. It was 1977, corduroys, Mm because that was big in the 70s. And I just thought I was so cool. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Jen Say, the chief marketing officer of global brands at Levi Strauss & Company. This company is 167 years old, and of course, it's famous for developing the first pair of jeans designed by Levi Strauss himself and Jacob Davis as they tried to make a tougher pair of pants during the California gold rush. Levi's is now a $5.7 billion global company, adding $1.2 billion to the top line over the past three years. Jen has a fascinating background. She's a national champion gymnast, a New York Times bestselling author, and has spent the last 20 years at Levi's. This conversation was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. This is my most interesting and wide-ranging conversation with Jen Say. Jen, welcome to the CMO Podcast. And I have to ask you, you're San Francisco-based. I am. We're recording in New York. What are you doing in New York this week? Well, there's always lots of good reasons to be in New York, to see you guys and do this is one. But I just sort of lined up a bunch of meetings that I... That I had, but one of them, which is super exciting, is I was meeting with the folks at the Tribeca Film Festival because in addition to my job as CMO, I produced a documentary that's going to premiere there in April. So I'm very that's proud exciting. Of it. it is exciting. Is it your first film you've produced? It's my first feature length film. I've done a couple shorts that weren't that good. <laughs> this one's much this better. Be, okay. Can you tell us the title yet, or is it a secret? I can. It was just announced yesterday, so Tribeca announced their schedule. Um, the film is called Athlete A, um, and I have to give you a little bit of background about myself so it makes sense. So I was a very serious athlete as a child, uh, an elite gymnast on the national team for nearly 10 years. Um, I was the 1986 national champion, in fact. Um, I think generally considered to be the worst national champion that ever was one. And so I say none of this with any hubris at all, because I think that's accurate. Um, But I, the sport is pretty brutal. Um, I think a lot of that has kind of come out in the last couple of years um, with the Larry Nassar revelations, who's now spending his life in prison. Um, But I struggled for a long time coming out of the sport. The coaching is really, really abusive And um, I wrote a book in 2008 that was about the culture of abuse um, and my experience in the sport. And the world was not entirely Can I read the title for that book? Because it is very provocative and interesting for our audience. Chalked up how elite, inside elite gymnastics, merciless coaching, overzealous parents, eating disorders, 
and elusive Olympic dreams. Yeah, wow. I, I don't love the sort of subtitle. <laughs> it well, gives it all away, doesn't interest. it? Yeah, yeah. true. Um, but yeah, so I wrote that book in 2008, and it was um, that was a tough time. The world did not want to hear it. The gymnastics world didn't want to hear it. Um, it was the early days of social media, and I faced incredible backlash would be an understatement, uh, you know, threats. Um, I mean, there were literal threats to my safety. Like I had to cancel readings that were scheduled because the publisher was worried about me. Um, so who was this? Was it people in the sport that were? Mostly people in the sport. Yeah. Fans of the sport, um, coaches. Um, you know, I, th I think the, the strategy within the sport, if anyone was to criticize it, all the way back to even sort of the first book that was considered an expose, Little Girls in Pretty Boxes by a woman named Joan Ryan, was to belittle, berate, um, insult, um, call a liar, whatever it took to say that this isn't true, um, you're full of it, um, and discredit the person, which is scary in the age of social media, how kind of almost violent it can become. So that's what happened. Um, you know, you're a loser. You never accomplished anything. You're just bitter. Um, and there were people who are now no longer with USA Gymnastics who were part of that criticism of me. Um, I got threatening calls at work, all kinds of things. And people sort of generally said, that was the 80s. Everything's different. And I was like, ah, mm, I don't really think so. Um, and the irony of all of it was that, you know, the goal of writing the book was to kind of close that chapter in my life and put it behind me. Because even as a 40-year-old, I was still struggling with some of it. Because um, abuse lasts a long time, um, but I kind of became a an early whistleblower in in essence, and I became someone that the press turned to. You know, if ever there was some sort of sports scandal like Sandusky and all of that, I was the one who was like on MSNBC, and um, and the tide then turned, and you know, with the emergence of this horrible, horrible pedophile Larry Nasser, um, I worked with a lot of the victims and the lawyer, and kind of became very involved in that in that case, and even traveled to D.C. to meet with Dianne Feinstein to talk about the Safe Sport Act, which is now the law. Um, so all of that is to say that prompted this idea that perhaps we could do a documentary, and one that was not just about Larry Nasser, but that kind of delved into the culture of the sport that allowed for somebody like that to abuse for so long. So is the documentary sort of a follow-up on the book? It's carrying those themes forward? I think so. I mean, the book is a memoir, so it's really my life mm -hmm. and my experience. And um, to protect myself when it came out, I think I sort of hedged a bit. And I said, oh, this is not an indictment of the sport. This is just my experience. I know some people had a great time. <laughs> but I was, you know, I, I look back on that and I realize I was doing that for self-protection. It absolutely was an indictment of the sport. What I experienced was what I think so many experience. And as I've met more of these survivors in the Nasser case, women who are nearly 30 years younger than me, their experiences are identical to mine. Um, and they talk about not just the abuse at the hands of Nasser, but in their own clubs by their own coaches, the emotional and physical abuses, what sort of allowed that to happen and what sort of made them believe that they didn't have the right to stand up for themselves, which is so sad. Yeah. And that's what you carry into adulthood. But I will say this, the film ends on a very hopeful note. Um, and so I'm proud of it. Yeah. And we're going to premiere well, at Congratulations. Chiraca. Thank That's you. That's remarkable. It's a huge yeah. achievement. Yeah. I mean, our directors, it's a husband and wife team, Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, and they're really, really rad. Um, so it's all a credit to them. So how did you get involved in gymnastics in the beginning? Was it a parent, a friend, a coach, a 
It was um, the 70s, and in the 70s, there weren't a lot of options for little girls when it came to sports. You know, we all look around now, and our girls play whatever sports the boys play, right? right? There's soccer leagues and basketball leagues. But in 1975, that wasn't really true. Um, It was just a few years after Title IX had passed, so you know, which meant that girls were afforded equal opportunity in education at the collegiate level, which meant scholarships, you know, if you were an athlete. So there were programs cropping up, but you know, the choices were kind of ballet, which I was already doing, and gymnastics. There may have been other stuff, but I didn't know about it. And you were growing up in what town? New Jersey, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Um, and then Nadia happened at the 1976 Olympics. And she was 14, so she looked like us. She was a little girl. And it was kind of a revelation. You know, we all watched her on television, and she scored perfect tens. And I think the most important thing was she looked like a child. I mean, she was a child. And, you know, up at, people now think of gymnastics as a sport for children. But if you go back and look at films in the 50s and 60s, they were grown women. They had children. Um, and so to see someone on TV that kind of reflected you back at you and, you know, you want, I wanted to do it. And so I was already taking classes casually, but I just then was obsessed. And I pushed my mom to let me do more and more and more. And I had a certain aptitude and it was really fun. And it was fun, and then it was fun, and then it wasn't anymore. <laughs> but I was a teenager before that happened. How did, this, how did that experience shape you as a leader today? Well, I know what bad leadership looks like. <laughs> that is for sure. Um, I know what bullying looks like. I know that's not how you get the best out of people. Um, I think a lot about how you create the conditions for a human to be successful and how we all contribute to helping each other kind of achieve our potential. Um, I don't think I've ever yelled at anybody ever. And I mean, maybe my kids to not like put their fingers in the socket, but I'm not a yeller. I certainly have never yelled at work. I don't think anyone's ever heard me yell at work. But you will know if I'm not pleased, I can be direct and respectful at the same time. Um, I mean, I think that's the main way. And there's still very much within sports a kind of coaching methodology in many sports that is about you have to get in their face and you have to be tough and they're not going to work as hard as they need to. And that isn't true. I mean, we were kids training eight hours a day. Nothing could have made me work harder than I was willing to work. Um, And I think about the berating, the belittling, the starvation, all of it. it. how many we lose because of those kinds of to- coaching tactics. We would be better if that were not the case. We've lost incredible athletes. I'm sure we've lost incredible, you know, humans in the workplace. Like treating sure. people poorly does not beget better performance. There's just no way. I was just with the CEO of Gallup last week, and he said, and they have the biggest database of people in the world. I mean, their, their surveys cover millions and millions. 15% of people at work are engaged. Yeah, I've heard this stat. Yeah, that's it. And, and, he and said then you have a huge percent that are n- neutral. And then there's actively a, like yep. fighting against, which is the most astonishing. Like they're trying to have you do worse. Yeah. It's astonishing. And, it's, and, and they've done all the studies about what, what drives it. It's all leadership. Yeah. It's all our behavior in the workplace with others. Yeah. It's yeah. all the difference between companies that grow and those that don't. Yeah, and we can affect it is. That. Yes. And we do the Gallup poll every year around engagement and we have a highly engaged. And it's, we'll get into it's, that later. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think the other thing is um, there are people who, you know, the, this idea of a growth mindset, which Carol Dweck talks about a lot, and we just heard from her a couple weeks ago, there are people that have that naturally, 
And I would say most of the best athletes I've ever trained with have that, right? Like, I can't do it now. I just can't do it yet, but I'm going to keep going. And they have it more than, I mean, the, the, I'll never work that hard again in my life, right? Like, it's, it's, unco- it's unfathomable to most people how hard we worked, how hard we trained with no food on injury. Like, to me, this is all fun, right? Nothing's ever going to be that hard again. But I look back and I think that was our attitude all the time. Like, I can't do it yet, but I'm going to get it. Mm-hmm. And so I do look for that in people. I think you can help build it and train it, but some people have it naturally. The growth mindset, the anything is possible, yeah. Yes. And it's not that all athletes have it, but the best ones I think really do. And so that is something I think that informs. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last one is how do you give feedback in a positive way that helps people? And one of the things I'm really struck by is when people can't accept feedback. And to me, that's a non-starter. If I'm giving you feedback with the intention of helping you to grow in the kindest, most respectful possible way, and all you're going to do is argue with me, then we're kind of at a crossroads. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think people that can't welcome and lean into feedback and even ask for it is one of the things I look for in, in, in the people that I think have a lot of potential. Yeah. I like this concept of a challenger board. You know, I have a small company and we bring people in from the outside every once in a while to just push us, challenge us, listen to us. And then, then and poke at us. Yeah, ask Make questions. Make us better, ask questions. Yeah. What are we not seeing? What are we not thinking about? Yeah. So powerful. It really is. And I, I think, how, do you, how can you find, I think about this with my team a lot, because I, I think my, you know, my job is just to create the conditions where they can all be successful, right? That's our job. That's our leader's job. Yeah. And how do you kind of do that dance where you're always asking questions and you're always challenging that it could be better, because I think everything could be better, but not have people feel like they're just always criticized, right? What's Because that's how I felt as an athlete. And, I, and, you know, that is part of it as a gymnast. I mean, they don't have the 10.0 scoring system anymore, but imagine, if you will, that they did. You might get a 9.9 and all you do is talk about the 0.1 you didn't get. No one bothers to say, great job on the 9.9 points you did get. And so I, I and that's demoralizing. Mm-hmm. So how do you kind of find that balance where you push people to do better and always see that it can be better, but also acknowledge tremendous progress when it's sure. there? So before we leave this topic, one other question, which I think our listeners will be interested in. You've become sort of a thought leader in this area. You know, you were brought to MSNBC when all the Penn State stuff, yeah. and, and you've written a book and now a movie, a documentary. You have a demanding job, and you've been at Levi's 20 years, and you have a bunch of kids. I do have a lot of kids. How do you do all that? Do all that? Because that's now, your book came out in 2008, so that's 12 years ago. Yeah, and I had a break from it. (laughs) But, you know, every once in a while, there's always a sports scandal that somebody might want to talk about. Well, I think think two things. I think um, before my book came out, I was very much of the mind, and I think a lot of women do this, that I kept a lot of who I was outside of the workplace. And I had been working on the book. Uh, I didn't want anyone to know. I thought, well, if anybody knows, they'll think my interests are elsewhere. If, you know, there's a promotion to be had, they're going to say, well, Jen doesn't want that. She just wants to write books. Um, But then the book came out and I was like on all the morning shows, right? Like when you're on CBS this morning, you're not really keeping it a secret anymore. And it had the exact opposite effect, which was people had more respect. They saw me as creative. They saw me as, I don't know, all these things. And I was like, oh, gosh, I missed the mark on that one. (laughs) Plus, they knew everything about me because it's a memoir like embarrassing things. Not really, because I wouldn't have put it in there, but they knew everything. And so I found that kind of merging myself, like bringing my whole self to work, my whole voice, my real values, not holding any of that back has 
one, simplified my life, <laughs> but also made me better. And I think I bring more of myself and my own personal values to the work that I do. The second piece is I'm not a huge fan of balance in general. I think balance is over the course of a lifetime. And there's times where I have more time for my family. And there's times where I am working like an insane person. And that's okay because that's what I want to be doing then. I mean, I always make time for my kids. But it... I don't know. I don't. I think balance is kind of a myth. Yeah, um, I think it's about self awareness, right? Yeah. And what are your goals, and what's the context for it? Yeah, exactly. Like when I was writing the book, I was, you know, writing till one in the morning and waking up at five to do it before my kids woke up, and I sacrificed sleep for a relatively short period of time, so there was no balance. Um, you know, when you have a baby, the first year you don't sleep either, sure. so sure. we can survive these things. Yeah. I I want to do the things I love and I care about, so I try to fit them all in. Do and you have that, another book in you? I do. Can you talk about it? I, I have this idea, which I have like random notes jotted all around my house, um, and it it's personal, but I think it has applicability, like not memoir type personal. It, well, in my mind, it's called Quitter. Um, which is intended to be provocative. But I, I realize, you know, we we are trained to believe, you know, winners never quit and quitters never win. And I think the most sort of, the moments in my life when I was able to kind of make the most progress is when I quit something to move on to something else. So maybe that's not really quitting, but it felt like quitting. Um, I retired from gymnastics, you know, months before the Olympic trials in 1988, which was a devastating decision. Um, but it opened up the rest of my life. And I went on to go to Stanford and met incredible people and embraced education in a way that I, you know, hadn't really had time for before. Um, Studied film. Yeah, I did. And so, you know, that's one example. Another that's more personal is I got divorced about 10 years ago. And, you know, for anyone that's gone through it, it's an incredibly devastating experience and it's not what you plan for your life. Um, but it opened up this amazing opportunity, you know, and I am a happier person and I think he is as well. And I have two young children and a husband who takes joy in life and we have fun together. So just this idea that quitting can be an opportunity mm -hmm. in a sense. I love it. Um, and I have a bunch of business examples of that too. But yeah. That's my idea. Are you going to offer people sort of a mindset or a framework on how to think about that? Because I think I'm, you know, now that you're speaking about that, I mean, I, I stopped playing. Now I have to write it. I, I stopped playing football <laughs> after like playing nine years and I started mm -hmm. playing in college and I lost my passion for it and I dropped it. I quit it and there was so much disappointment. It's And then I quit P&G. Right. And everyone's like, no, you can't do that. Are you crazy? Right. And so, but, but now look. Different things opened up. And when I stopped playing football, I actually started acting and taking different classes, and it was it was a blast. It's great, yeah. And and so I just we're all, and some of us more than others. Like I, I think I wait too long to quit things. I think some people might quit too soon. Um, you know, you want to think give generally it a fair people shot? take too long to quit things. No, I think everyone's different. I know I do. I I don't quit until I'm like bloodied and gutted on the floor, <laughs> which is yeah. probably a mistake. <laughs> so I'm working on that to sort of go, okay, now's the time. It's time to pivot and do something different. Um, I mean, I will bang my head against the wall before I quit. Um, but it's some of the best decisions in my life mm -hmm. were to quit and move so on. So you bang your head against the wall before quitting. Has that been a problem in business? Or you've learned yeah. to deal with it. 
I'm getting better. I, I mean, I'm old now, so I, <laughs> I've learned my lesson a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, a, a sort of, you know, a smaller example versus the ones I just talked about. You know, when I was, I guess I was like the U.S. marketing director. I've been at Levi's 20 years, as mm -hmm. you know. Um, I was the U.S. marketing director. It was back in about 2003, 2004. And I was like, I wanted that one job that was just like the next job. That was what I had my heart set on. It was the vice president of U.S. marketing. We weren't global at the time. And I wasn't getting it. They weren't seeing me that way. My boss, who was a woman on the verge of retirement, told me she was retiring. I was like, so when do I start? <laughs> and she was like, oh, no, no, that's not, you're not getting that job. And I was stunned. I couldn't believe it. I was like, but what do you mean I'm not getting? And then for a year, they didn't hire someone. And I was sort of acting. And every, you know, month I'd go in and I'd say to the so now are you considering? Nope, not you, not yet. And I just, I mean, I worked, it was more than I've ever worked in my life to try to prove. And I, they were not going to see me that way. It just wasn't my moment. Did they tell you why not? That's not the, really. I, that's I mean, I still part. think they were wrong, but that's yeah. besides the point. I wasn't going to change But you just want mind. honesty, right? What is it? Yeah. What is it? I mean, truthfully, someone told me I'd never be a CMO or a CMO at Levi's. Well, so clearly them. they were kind of wrong. Um, but I had to kind of accept they weren't going to, that was not going to be the path. And I just went and did something totally different in the company. I moved into strategy and I did strategy for two years and I wrote annual financial plans and strategic business plans and learned all kinds of things that I didn't know how to do, but the Google sort of taught me and it was the best choice I ever made. So I, I, I mean, in a sense, I quit sort of trying mm -hmm. to get that job that I thought was the only job. And the amazing thing was I did this lateral and then suddenly everybody saw me differently, right? Because I just developed so much more business acumen than many CMOs who only spend time in marketing. And then I ended up running e-commerce for a couple of years. So I tell people that, like, be open to different possibilities. It's not just, you can't map out your life. for mm -hmm. you Just be open. Don't plan too far ahead. <laughs> Someone said it's like a life and careers are like jungle gyms, not ladders. That's a good, I never that. heard that. I like that. Embrace yeah. that. Yeah, go over there. Learn something different. If you're mm -hmm. terrified, that's even better. That's right. Um, you'll learn more, you'll develop, you'll stretch, you'll change. It's all good. Exactly. Now, I, I can't wait to get into your Levi stuff, but I want to back up a little bit. And you grew up in Cherry Hill. So I grew up in Lancaster. Mm. So we grew up about 60 miles apart. Well, I trained in Allentown, so oh, even closer. Yeah. yeah. So I have to ask you, do, <laughs> do you have any favorite Philadelphia brands or Philadelphia traditions? Well, cheesesteaks, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> um. Gino's is probably my favorite. Right. You know, there's the triangle. Cheesesteaks, yeah. Um, and I did go to grade school in Philadelphia, 25th and Lombard. Um, yeah, I mean, outside, well, I, I think the pretzels in, in the whole sort of Pennsylvania area, I, I, this is embarrassing. I, I'm a salty person, like a savory, not a sweet. And there's this brand of pretzels called Unique Splits, which you may know. Yeah, if I you're do from know. Lancaster, and they know. make one a version with extra salt, which is like literally so coated in salt you can't see the pretzel. I order them by the like dozens of bags from. So can, what do you drink with that? Water or soft drink? There's cold beer depends. Probably beer. I'm a beer person. Yeah. It, it's favorite a dangerous beer? pretzel. Favorite beer? Racer Five IPA. Oh wow. I'm very simple. <laughs> I have this. I have like things I like and I stick with them, but I'll drink any IPA. Yeah, that's good. Well, you're yeah. I'm going to San Diego next, which is a big IPA city. 
Yeah. Stones. Well, I'll, yeah, I like stones. Yeah. I do like that. California is a big IPA yeah, town. In fact, it's sort of hard to get anything other than an yeah, IPA. So IPA. if you like a Pilsner, you're sort yeah. of out of luck. <laughs> well, I thought you might say Tasty Cakes. You know what? I forgot. Yes. Yeah, I maybe. grew up in, yeah, the butterscotch. Um, crimpets. Crimpets. Yeah. And, Peanut yeah. butter tandy takes. I was the butterscotch crimpets or yeah. even the jelly ones, which had those weird yeah. like balls of jelly in them. And you would have to, they came in wax paper. You know all this. I, I remember. Me. They were in my lunch every and day. Me too. Good memories, right? Yeah, those were good. I still have them when I go home. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now let's talk about Levi's. Okay. I love Levi's. 20 years, nine different roles, the last four years as CMO Global Brands. So you've been through this company through thick and thin. But seven years And now you're pretty much on fire. We are. So I want you to talk to our listeners about when times are tough, how do you keep your team's confidence and your confidence? And when things are good, like now, you've added like a billion two over the last several years on top line. Yeah. How do you keep people, you know, not complacent and still that's, eager and I still agree. That's stretching and, and still experimenting? Yeah, that's, that's so a good question. That's a lot of questions. So if I, know. I forget part, I'm just going to take the rest here and let you talk. Well, I think that I've stayed at Levi's for so long, and I've certainly had other opportunities, but I do love, I love the brand. I wear the brand. I've worn it since I was a kid. Um, everyone has a Levi's story, and I have a ton. Like, What's your favorite we, Levi's item right now? The God, there's so many. I mean, I was, I would have said either the wedgie or the 501 skinny, but right now I'm sort of digging the balloon, which is a loose. We're mm-hmm. bringing back the 90s and the 80s. A pleated, bring it, bring it on. A pleated balloon is very cute. Um, I might, yeah, that's what I like right now. Um, or the jumpsuit I'm wearing, which I would wear in every color. Um, so I, let's see. How, I love the brand. I love the values of the company. I'm now in this sort of enviable position of being able to sort of push those forward even further and have definitely been a part of that in the last seven years where we've dialed that up as a way that we talk have to the Have they shifted consumer. over the 20 years? Here, here's what I would say, because everybody wants to talk about, you know, oh, values-led and how, what should we stand for? Levi's has always been values-led. It's always been about profits through principles since, you know, Levi Strauss himself landed on the shores of California and the first profits he made he gave to an orphanage. Bob Haas, I mean, the stories are numerous. Um, we were the first company to offer same-sex partner benefits. That was in 1992. No one was talking about marriage equality in 92. We integrated factories in the South in the 50s before the law required it. So this is a company that has always behaved in a way that led with values, even if it wasn't popular. What we haven't done is talked about it, right? And I think there was almost a feeling that it was sort of tacky. You know, it's a little gauche. You do the right thing. You don't beat your chest about it, which I respect. Mm-hmm. Um, but now in an age where consumers want to know what you stand for, you know, millennials and Gen Zs demand it in a sense, and they want to choose brands and products that line up with their values, we have the opportunity to connect and engage that way. Now, the good news is we don't have to go, oh, shit, what are we going to stand for? Um, we can. It's already there. The 
challenge is how do we do this in a way that feels authentic and doesn't feel we do it with humility um, and we do it in a way that doesn't feel overdone because I think that's when you miss the mark. And there's a million examples, and I won't cite any other brands, of brands that have either done it without kind of lining things up inside or have done it in a way that's inauthentic or is greenwashing or It happens, still happens too washing. often. It does. So I think, you know, for us, the challenge is not are we lined up internally? <laughs> Although with some things, if we're going to make a new push, we do make sure that we are first. But just what is the right tone of voice to use? And the tone that we've sort of kind of landed is we, we always try to make it about progress over perfection. We don't try to say that we, have, we are victorious and we've done this perfectly because there's always more progress to, to be made. And I think that's why the consumer has embraced it. Um, and we try to make sure it's in our wheelhouse. You know, we don't sort of step too far. There are some things, but, you know, we can talk about some of those. But is it something that makes sense for us to talk about? Do we have a leg to stand on? Um, you know, we have a long history of standing for LGBTQ equality back before 1992, well back into the 80s. And so for us to stand and talk about that, we've been a friend to the LGBTQ community for many, many years. It rings true and um, therefore it works. Didn't you just announce paid sick leave? Wasn't that on paid announce? family leave? Paid yeah. family leave. Yep. So again, want to make sure we're walking the walk and, you know living our values before we talk about these things. And then it's always a balance of consumer communication, corporate communication, which is sort of more how you read about that. Um, but very often we use the brand to talk about our values. I mean, we are more than one brand, but Levi's is, is why we're famous and it's, it's most of the business. And that's what people think of when they think of Levi Strauss and company. Mm -hmm. So I, I asked you to think a little bit about, you know, how do you keep people stretching when you're doing well? Yeah. Any lessons in that? That's the hardest. you're riding a wave now, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, to get people engaged when things are tough, we're able to use the love of this brand. And I would say most people that work there have that same sort of love for the brand that I do. Um, and then the values of the company. And people stick with you through that. Some don't, but that's okay. Those are the disengaged people that, you know, maybe it's better. Um, I think now the real danger is we've been like underdogs fighting um, – for a really long time. Um, and I've been the CMO on Levi's since 2013, actually. And now that's my message to the team is, okay, now we're here, right? Now we've grown over a billion dollars in however many years. Our equity is up. Our profits are up. Our sales are up. People love us again. That Batwing t-shirt you can see on every street in the world. Um, that's no exaggeration. It is everywhere. The Batwing well is the Levi's mark. It, You'll know it if you see it. You probably know it. If you think about it, that's what we call it. Um, how do we not get complacent? Because what got us here was not being complacent. And so cutting and pasting what we did last year is not going to work. And so I find myself challenging the team more now than I did. Like seven years ago, it was how do we get aligned behind a vision, being supportive and moving everybody in a single direction. Now, I think I'm more demanding and challenging because I think my fear is being complacent and you know nothing will cause you to kind of fall off that ladder like hubris and thinking you know the answers the the other thing that I try to do is make sure what got us here was being really disciplined about consumer insights and listening to data and marrying that with an artful gut right like understanding how our brand will intersect with culture we can't think we know the answers and skip the data and insights part because we've had a good run. I mean, it would be real easy for me to go, I know now. 
Right. But I we we're not doing that because that's what we did in 1997 when the fall started. Um, but yeah, I think I'm just more more challenging and more demanding now. I also think just bringing in new people. Like we, my team is very stable. I've had the same leadership team for seven years, but bringing new people in in new key roles to kind of poke and prod and challenge the way you've been doing things. I think having new thinking all the time, talking to lots of people outside. I, I mean, the, the other piece is I'm a really avid consumer of culture. And I think I look for that in members of my team and in different ways. Like maybe someone's really into music. I'm very into film and literature. Like I don't insist that people read business books, but I do insist that you are a consumer of culture because how else are you going to understand the vibe out there? And that's what we need to do is understand how our brand intersects with what's happening in culture. And so... Do you have any, I know you're an avid reader, film buff, you have a diverse team. Any other tips for our listeners about how to stay in touch with culture and the busy lives we lead? I think you have to do it the way that you're passionate about. Like, I don't want... If you love podcasts, which I do, then listen to them. Um, I always joke, and my boss, Chip Berg, laughs at me. I don't read business books. I think they're boring. <laughs> I don't. Except mine. Yours is great. Chip loves mine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I will read them when they're assigned, but by and large, it's not what I seek out. Um, me too. Because if you're not interested in what you're consuming, then how is it going to help you? And I, I think as a creative person, ideas kind of come from everywhere. And I might be reading something that has nothing to do or seemingly nothing to do with whatever idea it sparks. Um, news, literature, movies, that's my thing. But I think if that's not your thing, then go to lots of shows and see a lot of music and everyone has a thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they do. If you were to summarize the playbook you used, and you probably don't like that word, but no, the I'm approach thinking. you use for the acceleration of the Levi's brand. Right, we're, you're 167 years old or so. 1853. That's a tough, and and the brand is maybe more relevant, more contemporary, you know, more vibrant than ever. Yeah. So how did you do it? Because it wasn't always that way in your tenure. Definitely not. I've certainly. I've, what everyone can others learn from you? Yeah, you know, everyone used to, you know, people talk about the flywheel. You know, the Jim Collins flywheel. And I was like, what is this damn flywheel? I've never felt it. Every year is just as hard as the one before it. And I do feel it now. I mean, I get it. Like, we put something in the world and the momentum it begets is kind of insane. You know, I think how I thought about it in 2013 when I started the job is different than now. In 2013, it was like, we've got to get the foundation right. It was so broken. Everyone had a different idea of what the brand stood for. So That's when you say foundation, it's the... All of it. The brand, you, the values. The, what of the, is the brand value? Pro mm -hmm. I mean, just all the like seemingly academic stuff. Like what's the brand value proposition? What is the look and feel? What is our casting? What is our music? What's our view on music? What it, All of it. What is our tone of voice? Like I was just busy writing this stuff. You know, what is, we had decks and decks of research and no one paid any attention to it. Just like I went through all of that to understand where are we, what are we doing wrong? And the amount of progress we were able to make pretty quickly just through the sort of basic discipline. Um, we relaunched Women's in 2015 and it was me and my partner in design and it was like every single, we sweated every detail. You know, what is the leather patch and what is the branding and what is the name of every product? Like, Execution matters, you know, but you have to know what that higher level vision is 
to know what you're executing against, but you got to sweat every detail. And what I say now is we have the foundational components in place. I think everyone inside has a sort of common vision for what the brand is and means. Um, and now we're trying new things all the time to see what, what works and we're fueling the growth, um, with investment. Um, but just now we want to try a lot of stuff. In fact, one of the things I talked with the folks this morning at Tribeca about is, you know, as any marketer knows, there's this insatiable need for content. Like it's like endless, right? 30 years ago, you made a couple ads, you hit play and you kind of waited to see what happened. And now like every day we release new content. I'm not happy with some of the, like, I don't want branded content. I want content that's good enough that you would watch it anyway, not just because Hulu made you, because it, you had to wade through it to get to your mm -hmm. show. And I don't think we're there yet, you know? Um, but I think the way we activate events and PR is world-class and is what allows us to compete. Like, we don't, we don't go and sponsor a show and hang a logo, because who cares? But we add value to the experience at Coachella by doing world-class customization. So we add to the experience. We don't just sponsor it. I went to your house at South by Southwest, I don't know, a year or oh, two ago. Oh, that was ago. a good one. A couple, two years. Three? Fabulous. It was, it was great. It was a good one, right? I loved it. Yeah. Went with my son. He loved it. And we spent, I don't know, we probably spent an hour there. But don't you find, like, when you walk around in South by, you're in these different brands and you don't know where you are and what you're supposed to, but that felt like Levi's. It was Levi's for sure. Yeah. And there were shows you wanted to see and there were speakers you wanted to hear. And so add value to the experience. Don't just sort of annoy people. <laughs> no. So I want you to tell us about, you're the CMO of Global Brands now at, at Levi Strauss and Company. Tell us about your job. What do you do? I mean, if you had to put it into a, a pie chart. Oh, you mean break it down by percent? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the number one thing is, is clarify the vision for what the, the North star for what the, I'll say, I'll focus on Levi's. What is this, what does this brand mean and what does it stand for? And what are we striving for? Not right now, but like, something in the far off future that's sort of bigger than you can imagine and fight for that every day, whether it's product or processes or, you know, certainly content and marketing, which I own creating, but beyond that, um, you know, what, what is the vision that's for what we're going to stand for and what we're going to mean to people. You know, when you think about the very best brands in the world, I'll use Disney, some, you know, a brand outside our category, it's all about the magic of childhood. And everything they do is in service of bringing that to life. And that's why when people go to Disney World, they tell stories for the rest of their life about it. When they go to Universal Studios or what, they don't. No offense to them. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's different, yeah. you know? And people tell stories about the Levi's that they wore in high school or in college when they took a cross-country road trip. And people don't really tell stories about other brands of jeans. Um, so... What is the vision that we are in service of? And I, I think, and then, of course, I am responsible and own the creation of all of that content. But getting people aligned around that vision and that North Star is not as easy as one might think, you know? Oh, I know sometimes, that. Yeah, sometimes we think, oh, my job is to have the answer. No, it's not. That's the easy part. The, the hard part is getting, you know, thousands of people marching in one direction <laughs> um, and then responding in real time to what's working and um, and doubling down on those things. I think the other challenging part of a job like ours, any marketer's job now, is we don't is the recognition that we don't own this brand. We never really did. It was always sort of a 
co-created thing with the consumer. But we thought we had control of it. Now we know we don't, right? Because people talk about you and it's po- they did before too. We just didn't see it. And so how can you kind of exploit, um, that's not the right word because it sounds negative, but how can you Amplify, use that to your yeah, advantage, sure, yeah, right. this idea that the brand is co-owned with the people that love it? That's how yeah. I think about the job. How yeah. can we create more experiences for more fans so that they want to tell stories about Levi's? Mm-hmm. I would sort of summarize, I, how do we create the conditions for more stories to be told and for more fans to love the brand? I know that sounds very broad and general, but that is how I think about my job. Is this going to create the conditions for that to happen? If not, then let's not do it. You said a few minutes ago that you've had the same team together for about seven years. My direct reports. Yeah, my how have you done team. that? That's unusual. It is really unusual. It's also unusual to be a CMO for seven years. I think that the- um, That was my tenure. That's, it is unusual. It's still unusual. Yeah. I mean, I think the average is like 18 months to two years. So um, how? I don't know. I, I think you probably have to ask them why they don't leave. I mean, I think part of it is we all feel part of something. Um, I think everybody feels recognized and acknowledged for what they do that's sort of driving this thing forward. I mean, certainly it's more fun when you're growing. Um, But I think I try really hard to kind of give them each personal attention, um, give them feedback, recognize them, acknowledge them. I think everybody feels part of the growth and feels part of the success. And everyone's voice feels heard, I guess. That's how maybe. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You'd have to ask them. I've loved this discussion, and I want to sort of end it with a and punctuate it with a bit of a lightning okay. round. So I'm going to ask you some questions about life and okay. business and you as a okay. leader and so on, and we're going to sort of I'm end ready. with that. What's a brand today that you would rather not live without? You you would really miss if it went away. Well, it's hard not to say Apple, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, so it's Apple. I guess so. Um, I would probably struggle a bit just from a. I, I, I'm pretty hooked on Instagram right now. I never, I rarely look at Facebook anymore, but I do spend more time than I would like on Instagram. And then I'm also going to give a shout out to the New York Times, which I also spend a ton of time on Mm -hmm. reading. And I think they've done an incredible job reinventing their content. I agree with that. We've had them on the podcast. Amazing. You should listen. I will. It's a great story. Yeah. I I spend a lot of time reading the New York Times. I do too. (laughs) What's a brand marketing campaign you really admire? I like the Adidas work right now. Um, yeah, made with care, worn without. I really like it. I think it speaks to Gen Z in a really compelling way. Um, every choice they made and how it's executed, the people in it, the styling, the events, the way they've put artists in that you and I might not know, but the kids know, and it's speaking to them. Um, yeah, I'm impressed with the work Adidas has done lately. The best marketing campaign you have ever worked on? Live in Levi's. Okay, very good. <laughs> I thought you'd say that, but I had to ask. I mean, a specific, can I give two specific? Because sure. Live in yeah. Levi's is our, like, yeah, just know, do it. Like, that's yeah. the big platform. But I think there's two executions within that, if I could yeah, cite. Please. One is running right now. Um, it's all about vote, voting, getting out the vote, and that will run all year. Um, if you wonder why Levi's thinks they should talk about voting, voting, I would say Levi's is all about self-expression, and there is no purer form of self-expression than the vote. And I'm incredibly proud of that work. And I've seen it hundreds of times and I cry every time. I mean, part of that's Aretha Franklin, so check it out. The others is um, a campaign called Circles, which is all about connection in a divided world and how we're all more alike than we are different. Um, 
I'm proud of that one Beautiful. too. Beautiful. Levi's is a great connector. People from all walks of life wear Levi's. Yeah. Um, you've got, you know, cowboys and rockers and rappers and everyone in between, skaters and they all podcast pull on hosts. podcast hosts and yeah, minivan moms and everyone in between. And it actually came to me, it was after the election in 2016 and the world felt really, really divided. I mean, it still does. And I was like, I think we have an opportunity to do something really special because Levi's is this great connector and we can remind people that it's our differences that unite us. And that was the mm-hmm. inspiration. For yeah. It. yeah. Who's the most important mentor in your career? Who has been? Can I cite a coach? Yeah, sure. Um, so my coach, Lois Musgrave, who passed away many years ago, um, and I would have been better served if I never left her, but she was an educator in the purest sense of the word. She cared about raising strong young women, um, not medals. And so she coached you when? When I was um, about eight to 12. Um, just the loveliest, most amazing giving person I've ever met in my life. Um, and the biggest lesson you learned from her was? Be kind first. How you treat people is how they will remember you. It's the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. Who else would you like to listen to on this podcast? Oh, you're asking me a really hard question. Um, my friend Bose, have you talked to her? No, we have not yet. No, I know her, absolutely. She's a good one. I think the work she does around diversity and inclusion and beyond that, obviously, but, and she's just an awesome person. I think I'd like to hear her. I mean, I've heard her talk a lot, so I know what she'd say, but I think she's pretty amazing. You know, Carla Harris yeah. from Morgan Stanley. Yeah. yeah. Okay. She was the most amazing person I've ever heard at any sort of like summit or business or anything. And she really talked about your own authenticity. If you can't bring that to your job, you're just not going to ever be the best that you can be. And she told a story that's a little similar to the one about I told when I, about my book and um, about her singing because she's a singer and she hid that from people at work for many, many years. Um, And, you know, she's a, I don't know how old she is. She's a little older than me. Um, I think she called herself a boomer, a, a black woman, female boomer who's successful on Wall Street. I mean, She's We're, rad. Let's do it. <laughs> get let's her. Do it. You should get her. She's the best. Jen, this has been wonderful. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Jen Say. In this episode, we talk about so many things. We talk about Jen's wrenching start in gymnastics and how that sort of shaped her as a person and as a leader. And we talked about her 20 years at Levi Strauss, which is amazing because when I asked her what her favorite first brand was, it was Levi's. And now she's built an amazing career there. But what I really loved about it was how Jen talked about the power of quitting something. It might be a job, it might be a position in a company, it might be a sport, and how quitting, which we none of us love to do, opens up new doors, new creativity, and expands yourself. In fact, she's working on a book about that concept. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.